You're listening to Art Affairs, episode 47. Today I'll be talking to Ken Harmon Hashimoto. So my name is Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. Art Affairs is my attempt at shining a spotlight on the many wonderful people that make up this amazing art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, telling their stories. You can dig through previous episodes, complete with show notes, at artaffairspodcast.com. But the best way to stay plugged in is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're really enjoying the show and want to help support what I'm doing here in an even bigger way, check out the Art Affairs Patreon. Not only does it give you an opportunity to help keep the show going, but there are several community-oriented benefits as well, like getting early access to episodes and suggesting questions for upcoming guests. You can find all the details on patreon.com artaffairs. You can also connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Art Affairs Podcast. All right, so today's guest is gallerist Ken Harmon Hashimoto. Ken is truly a man of many hats. He's the owner of three galleries, both print and book publishers, and now a puzzle company. But as we talk about, it's impossible to do as much as he does unless you surround yourself with good people. We talk about that. We also talk about how all these endeavors first got started, what he's hoping to achieve in the future, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ken Harmon Hashimoto. Ken, welcome to the show, man. It's, it's good to finally have you on. Yeah, you too, man. It's been a minute. Yeah. Uh, when did I see you last? LA? For Horror Esau TV show. At, No, it was Esau's show in uh, Arizona, I think. At right? Mesa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool, man. Um, that was two years ago, something like that. Yeah. 20, 2019, I guess it was like mm-hmm. spring or, or May of 2019, I think is what it was. Yeah. Cool. Well, you know, I will be, I will be returning there, uh, next year in October, uh, to Mesa the Mesa arts museum in Mesa, Arizona, right outside of Scottsdale, uh, where I will be presenting the 10th annual Moleskin project group show. Nice. Nice. I uh, love the Moleskin. Yep. So it'll be a beautiful museum exhibition. All of the works will be available for sale through the gallery, all brand new work. And uh, it will open alongside, I think I can say this, I assume that this is okay to, to, to make public information. Um, it'll open alongside a Ron, Ron English uh, solo exhibition as well. Very cool. So that'll be a pretty big deal. And uh, yeah, looking to get a new book published for Moleskin Project, maybe do a catalog for Ron. I went to his house a couple weeks ago to uh, chat about that. And, um, yeah, so that'll be cool, man. I look, I love that area. You know, we do the Frank Lloyd Wright show there too. It's right next door. So, uh, I didn't realize you did that at, um, at, do you do it at Mesa or just in Arizona in general? So Frank Lloyd Wright's house his like actual house Mm -hmm. where he lived and where his studio and architecture school, uh, were, uh, is in Scottsdale, which is adjacent to Mesa. So it's a 10 minute drive from the Mesa arts museum to Frank Lloyd Wright's house. They're, you know, very close to each other. 
Um, and I will be in Scottsdale at Wright's house this October, this October, uh, for our next Frank Lloyd Wright show. So I'll be spending awesome. some time in this, in this area. I love it. Very cool. And shout out to Frank Gonzalez holding it down at Mesa mm. Museum there. That's my dude. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So before we dive into your background, which is, is somewhere I usually like to start with folks, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your your name, because I know for many years, um, and certainly when I first met you, you were going by Ken Harmon. But then a couple years ago, you said, you know, I want to embrace my my birth name and go by Hashimoto. So I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you a little bit about both sides of that decision. I guess sure. what made, made you want to, I guess what motivated you to go with the Harmon name? And then on the other side of it, what made you decide to go ahead and, and go with Hashimoto? For sure. So for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm, I'm half Japanese. My uh, mother is from Japan. She's actually from Hiroshima. Uh, she's also 79 years old, uh, which means she remembers the bomb. She's an atom mm-hmm. bomb survivor. Um, wow. And uh, so, uh, and my father's uh, Caucasian. And, uh, you know, I was raised by my mother in a very traditionally Japanese household, um, you know, first generation immigrant parents oftentimes, you know, are, are pretty, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a different life, right? You don't, you don't know it until you live it. And, um, so I grew up in a very traditional, traditionally Japanese household, but I'm not necessarily Japanese looking because I am multiracial and, uh, interestingly enough, I have dual citizenship. And I have dual citizenship under both names. So it depends on where I am will be what my name is legally. Um, and, uh, you know, in the States, it's always been Harmon. Um, you know, just traditionally you take your father's name. But after I opened Hashimoto Contemporary, uh, one of my galleries in 2013, I sort of kept encountering this interesting situation in which, uh, A, because I'm young, uh, or at least I was then, I'm not really young anymore. But because I'm young, you know, I would be at art fairs or I would be at exhibitions or I would be at shows or wherever. And people would just assume that I'm like a guy, I'm like a white guy working at this gallery, you know, (laughs) and they would always and like, it's funny, but um, my girlfriend, Jennifer, she uh, she told me this funny story where when she first met me at an art fair in New York, uh, you know, way back in the day. For whatever reason, she had somehow gotten it in her mind that Hashimoto Contemporary was a, it was an art gallery owned by a little old Japanese lady. <laughs> <laughs> and and so when she met me, she was like, oh, like, yeah, like I met that nice guy at that, at that gallery. Like, I wonder who the owner is. You know? <laughs> and um, so that sort of just kept happening. And to make things easier, uh, I just sort of slapped the Hashimoto onto my name in sort of more public facing um, areas. And I'll use it, you know, I'll, depending on the situation, I can go either way. Um, it doesn't matter much to me. Um, I'm both as far as I'm concerned. So um, some people get a little confused by it, but it also provides some clarification for people too. So, sure. um, but you know, when you're multiracial, uh, a lot of these things are just generally nebulous. Um, you know, racial identity is a very interesting thing. And, um, you know, uh, the name is only just one, you know, of many things that, sure. you know, just growing up, you sort of try to navigate and figure out. And like, it's hard to convey to people who 
don't experience that. Like there's Japanese people who don't understand this experience. There's white people who don't understand. But I probably have more in common with someone who's half black than I do with someone who's 100% Japanese, you know, so. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so as far as the names go, Harmon was your, is your father's name and Hashimoto is mm-hmm. your mother's name. That's where. Correct. Okay. Very cool. So where did you, I know you spent a lot, a lot of your life in the Bay area and in, in, in Oakland. Is that where you grew up or did you grow up uh, in another part of the world? So I grew up in Southern California in the San Fernando Valley. Um, and when I was 19, I hopped on a Greyhound bus and I went to Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, for a girl, for a girl who was living <laughs> at an all-girls college. I lived there for many years, uh, and I moved to the Bay probably like in 06, 07, around then. Um, and I've been mostly there for most of this time, though I do, I'm currently in Brooklyn right now. I, I, I'm now mostly uh, in New York, but uh, I still spend, I still have my place in, in Oakland, and I still spend a lot of time there. Okay. And, and so growing up in San Fernando Valley, um, did you have much exposure to the arts uh, as a kid? You know, I did actually. And um, my mother is an artist, um, a pretty good painter, actually. And she um, always, always took me to museums as a kid. And, uh, you know, she had, you know, like single mom working you know, uh, you know, we're, you know, working, you know, a job and like, we didn't, we did not have a lot of money growing up at all. And, uh, the fact that she thought that it was important to have like a LACMA membership so that she could take me to the museum regularly as a kid, um, I think shows sort of her priorities there. And, uh, so I grew up in a very art friendly household. Were you artistic yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I took art, art classes as a kid and I was pretty good at drawing, but, um, you know, <laughs> not to the level of, of my friends today. Um, but you know, I've, I've always loved it as an appreciator and just as something to do. So, so growing up, what, what did you expect your career would be? Like what kind of career goals did you have in high school? Oh, I didn't have any, uh, and I never went to college. Um, you know, I, I, I did not ever expect to be involved in the arts and, uh, This is sort of a bit of an interesting detour here on this story. But um, uh, when I was a kid, when I was about probably like two, when I was a baby, my mother was looking for something. She was looking for some sort of guidance, right? You're an immigrant in a new country. You've got this bratty two-year-old running around. (laughs) You know, you, 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 you want some sort of guidance in life. And a friend of hers recommended that she reach out to this psychic in Las Vegas. Uh So it's 19, whatever, 84. My mother mails a check for $200, $300, which is a lot of money at that time, uh, to the psychic in Las Vegas. She fills out, you know, these questionnaires and what time of the day and this and that, you know, fills all this paperwork out, mails it to the psychic with the check. And a couple weeks later, the psychic mails her a couple cassette tapes, you know, this two, three hour long reading, right? And because, you know, in, in 1984, the, the long distance <laughs> charges, you would have, you, you know, Pacific right. Bell or, you know, Ma Bell would have charged you would have been, you know, astronomical, right? So it was much more effective to do that. And, um, you know, my mother had sort of mentioned that at various points, like, I know that she had done that, but I didn't really know much about it. And uh, probably about maybe seven or eight years ago, I was at home in, a, in, in Southern California. And uh, 
let's just drive it around. You know, she's old and I drive her to the Japanese market and stuff, things that are far away that she typically can't do herself. And uh, driving to the market and she's like, oh, look at what I found while cleaning up. I found these cassette tapes. And I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. Wow. Fucking put it in, man. Let's what's what's going on. I, this is interesting. <laughs> and she puts it in. And you know, the psychic got a lot of stuff wrong, right? I mean, you know, she never remarried. She never had a second kid. You know, like he got a lot of stuff, right? He got a lot of stuff wrong. That's the way these things go. Yeah. And you know, he didn't talk about me much because it wasn't about me. It was about her. Uh, but he did talk about me for a couple of minutes. And this is such a trip, man. So in this fucking tape, which I have heard with my own two ears, I have heard this cassette tape. I've heard this at this point now, almost 40 year, 40 year old cassette tape. He says, your son will be involved in the arts. Oh, wow. But he won't be an artist. He may own an art gallery or something similar to that. Wow. You got that How, spot on. <laughs> you know, like that, like, listen, man, like after, you know, I'm a very rational, logical human being, right? And after hearing that, fucking sign me up, because how do you call <laughs> that? How, Crazy. like, you know, that's not a common job, right? Right, right. Your son, you know, your son will wait tables. Okay, cool. Yeah, millions of people wait tables. Your son will own an art gallery? I was two years old. And I've heard this tape. I mean, this is not, yeah, it's anecdotal, but it's not hearsay, you know, so. Yeah, that's insane. That's insane crazy. that you got that so spot on because it wasn't an obvious trajectory for you at all. Um, not at all. And so your decision to not go to college, was it a purely a financial one or were you just unsure of where, what you wanted to do? Uh, I don't think I really cared, to be honest with you. Um, in retrospect, like looking back now, I, I wish I had gone just because I love to learn. Uh, I'm always reading. I'm always reading a book. Um, I would probably argue that I have more of a college education than college gra than most college graduates. Um, but uh, you know, I'm a smart dude. I you know, I never. I don't know. Just never really appealed to me. I think that there's a lot of people for whom this is a, this is a pretty common thing. But yeah, it just wasn't wasn't really my bag. I'm not much. I don't. I don't like following rules and obeying orders, so, <laughs> especially at that age. I was not really uh, amenable to that. So. so you moved out to the Bay Area in 2006, um, which is a couple of years before you started working for Arrested Motion. Um, and you know, mm -hmm. during that period, you were, you were waiting tables. And I think you had even gotten your Sommelier license at one point. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. First level. First level. Not, not, I mean, the first one's the easy one, but yeah. Right on, right. And so, so how did you ultimately get hooked up with uh, Arrested Motion and start like doing art writing? Um, yeah. So, uh, for those of you who are who who aren't familiar, Arrested Motion's uh, like an art blog. Um, they've been around for quite some time. They probably started in two thousand and nine, two thousand and eight, seven around then. So they've been around for a minute. They're not quite as active as they used to be, just because blog, you know, the landscape has changed and. Um, you know, the internet has changed since a lot since then, but for, uh, you know, a while they were a very active art, art blog and website and forum and stuff like that. But I met, uh, one of the co-founders, uh, of Arrested Motion in 2000, in January of 2009 in Washington, DC at Obama's inauguration. Oh, wow. And, uh, 
Tanley is his name. And I met Tanley in DC at the inauguration. Um, and I just sort of started, he, you know, had this new website and, um, was looking for someone in the Bay area to cover gallery exhibitions and do studio visits and go to openings and stuff like that. And I was sort of doing that stuff anyways. Uh, so I started writing for them, uh, pretty regularly for one or two years, couple years, uh, at which then I met the owners of high fructose magazine, um, who are, they also live in the Bay. Uh, got a job with them, and then served as an editor there for uh, a couple years before opening my first gallery in 2011. So, so you had already been pretty active in like the the gallery and the art scene in the Bay Area before started before you started writing for Arrested Motion. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the reason that <laughs> the reason that I was at. <laughs> at a presidential inauguration <laughs> as a 20, I don't know how old I was, 22 year old kid. At the time, I think I was, at, I think my day, my quote unquote real job at the time was I was working at Whole Foods, I want to say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was working at Whole Foods at that time and, um, you know, just bagging groceries, stocking shelves, whatever. And, uh, at the time I had a website of my own that was, uh, focused on the artwork being made around the Obama campaign, Shepard Ferry's Hope, for example, you know, that's the seminal piece, right? So basically I had this website and I would, I would cover all the different things happening in the art world in regards to the Obama campaign. And then Obama wins. Uh, One of my readers sends me a ticket to the inauguration because by that point, by the time he won, I had a pretty popular website. And um, so I got a free ticket to this presidential inauguration, uh, which is insane and like such a historic moment. I mean, I can't, I'm, I, I can't believe I was there. And um, uh, of course, as a 22 year old grocery bagger at Whole Foods, uh, the 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 option of going is very difficult because hotels in Washington D.C., especially at that inauguration. Um, you know, I mean, it was like a thousand, it was like going to Comic-Con, right? It's like a thousand dollars a night for a hotel room. So luckily a friend of mine, uh, was curating a show for moveon.org and Shepard Ferry. I had known him through my website, just online. And uh, I hit him up and I was like, Hey, like, do you have any recommendations on where I could stay? And he said, Hey, why don't you come just stay in the gallery? We've got like a storage room, bring a sleeping bag. And so I came, I lived in the back of this gallery with a few other, actually a few artists from that show who also couldn't afford a hotel room. And so I lived in this art gallery for a week, saw this giant exhibition sort of come, you know, come and happen and develop and got this sort of behind the scenes look at how that functions. Uh, And that was like a pretty eye opening experience for me. And I think pretty influential in what would later become my, my career. Yeah. Like a precursor almost. For sure. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> so as far as like starting up the timing for when you actually started up Spoke Art, it was around the same time or a little bit after you started working for High Fructose, if I understand the timing correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had been at High Fructose for a couple of years before starting the gallery, but yeah. Okay. And I believe it started as more or less a series of pop-up events. Is, is that right? Like before, mm-hmm. even before yeah. you got your physical location. So how did that first kick off? What gave you the, I guess, the idea to start doing these pop-up events? So, uh, my first show ever was in 2010 in Jack London square in Oakland. 
And a buddy of mine, Eddie Cola, he had gotten an, an invite to curate this show for the East Bay Express, the East Bay Express being the local alt-weekly newspaper um, for, the, for the East Bay area. Um, and so I was tasked with curating a show of, my, of the best of the best, quote-unquote, of the East Bay. And, you know, looking back at that show, uh, you know, Alex Pardee was in it. Right. This is 2010. Um, Dave Correa, Skinner, uh, Scott Hovey, um, you know, a lot. Monica Canelow, a lot of great Bay Area artists, uh, including uh, Gats, a street artist who I still work with to this day. Um, Peter Gronquist, an artist I work with to this day. Brett Amory, an artist I work with to this day. Alex Party and I just had a show in L.A. a couple months ago. Um, and Chuck Sperry as well. This was, this was my first time working with Chuck. Uh, he brought out Emery Douglas, uh, Ron Donovan was there and, um, you know, that was my first exhibition ever. And here we are over 10 years later and it's crazy, but so many of these artists still work with me. I think that that's a good indicator that I'm pretty good at what I do. And I think that they're pretty good at what they do. And I think it's a pretty good combo. Yeah, good relationship for sure. And and so what led to you actually settling down in your first brick and mortar location there on Sutter Street in, in San Francisco? Sure. So my so at this time, right, it's 2010, 2011, and I am curating these pop-ups, right? Uh, you know, my first pop-up was this East Bay Express show. And from there, it just sort of, you get an itch, right? You, it's just something that once you do one, you sort of can't stop. And so my next show after that was the first Wes Anderson show, which was a pop-up show. Did a couple other pop-up shows. And in 2011, I've got this buddy, Rod Luff, a painter who at the time was living in Australia. And he's coming to the U.S. for a show at what used to be Phone Booth Gallery in Long Beach. And I hit up Rod and I say, hey, Rod, you're going to be in the States. Why don't you mail me your moleskin? Because he had been documenting the process of his moleskin journal. Why don't you mail me your moleskin? You can do your show with Gary at Phone Booth Gallery. And then you can come up to the Bay and we can present your moleskin book as its own standalone show. So Rod mails me his book. I t- cut the pages out, which is crazy. We get the whole book custom framed beautifully. And Rod buys his tickets and gets his hotel and all this and that. And, uh, you know, a couple weeks before his show was supposed to open at this pop-up venue that I had reserved, uh, the pop-up venue goes out of business, Oh wow! you know, and it, the show opens in two weeks. Like there's no, the show must happen. There's no, it's not going to happen. Wow. Tickets are booked, everything. Right. And of course, back then there's no pop-up culture. There's no easy pop-up websites like there are today. So. Uh, you know, I ask her, I ask everyone I know, I ask every gallery I know, hey, can I borrow your space for a week? No one has availability. And eventually my friend says, hey, I got a friend who says, hey, the old Huff store on Sutter Street closed pretty recently and it's vacant. Why don't you go check that out? So I go check it out. It's a perfect size. I talk to the landlord. I say, hey, listen, I only need this space for an art show. I'll give you a month. I'll, I'll rent it for a full month. I don't need it for a full month, but I'll rent it for a full month. And they tell me, no, it's a minimum of a two-year lease. I say, fuck it. I've got like <laughs> I've got like the $3,000 needed to cover the deposit. And I say, all right, cool. Uh, I sign a two-year lease. Rod show opens two weeks later. It sells out on the opening night. 
and I just start booking shows as quickly <laughs> as I can because I've got two years. I've got a two-year legal financial obligation now. Um, and, you know, for those first few months, I'm at the gallery during the day. I'm at I'm waiting tables to pay the bills at night. And I'm writing for High Fructose on the weekends. Um, and eventually, the gallery does well enough that I can quit my high-paying job at this fancy restaurant and pay myself $35,000 a year, <laughs> <laughs> which is what I paid myself for many, many, many years. And, uh, you know, and from there, it's just sort of history. That's amazing that it was sort of just, it, I mean, think about it, if any one of those things hadn't happened the way that they happened, like the, the pop-up space venue didn't go out of business. Suddenly, you, like, would Spokar still be a thing? <laughs> That's insane. Sure. Totally. That's crazy. Totally. Well, and it's, it's also really cool to know that some of these series that have been a big part of your program even predated the physical location Wes Anderson's for sure. sure and then the Moleskine show is still part of your program today and that was effectively the impetus for getting a physical location yeah that's really cool so like how was it how did you balance the two as you were still working the the restaurant jobs and writing for high fructose and trying to start up your own business how did you balance all of that well, you know, high fructose had to, that was something I couldn't maintain, um, partially because it, 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 as, as the gallery thing grew, uh, that would eventually become a conflict of interest. Um, you know, I can't be an editor for, you know, a major international art magazine and also right. my <laughs> own art gallery. Right. So eventually, um, I, I wound up leaving high fructose, um, I trained some folks to follow in my footsteps and they took the reins from me. Uh, and, um, you know, in terms of the waiting tables job, that's easy enough, you know, because I wouldn't have to be at work until night. Right. So I could work at the gallery all day, rush over to work. And, you know, uh, I was a pretty good waiter to be honest with you. And I could just sort of slide into, you know, just put on your apron get in, hit the floor at six o'clock and sell some food, you know, so <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty easy to balance. Was that sort of a difficult or um, the transition from writing about art to exhibiting art, just the, the skill sets between those two different types of work? Was that a difficult thing to kind of learn and, and get your hands around? Uh, no. And what's interesting about the art world um, is that you don't you see this pretty often. Most art writers curate shows. That's very, very, very common. Um, you know, you open any major art publication and the people writing in that art publication have probably curated a show somewhere, whether on an institutional level or just as a personal project. It's very common. Whereas you don't, you know, Siskel and Ebert never directed a film, <laughs> you know, food critics don't open restaurants, you know, uh, maybe book reviewers, I guess, I guess there's probably some book reviewers out there who who have written books. But, you know, in terms of the creative fields, it's not, there's not a lot of overlap between the, 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 the criticism side and um, the more sort of artistic side. But uh, in the art world, it's pretty common. And it, it was a pretty easy transition to make because you, because you spend your entire day thinking about art, right? You mm -hmm. spend your day thinking about it and analyzing it and, you know, trying to figure it out. So it actually makes, probably makes for a better curator. Well, and also just the ability to articulate your thoughts about art. Like, I think that's another component that a gallerist almost has to have, right? 
Um, one thing that's that's been unique about um, Spoke Art since the very beginning is the fact that you guys embraced prints very early on. Um, and that's that's always been kind of a first class component to your gallery offering alongside and 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 complementary to the fine art. Um, I guess what went into the decision to have prints be such a big part of your program? Um, yeah, I feel pretty I feel pretty good about how early on we started with prints. And I think that nowadays, you know, every gallery has a print program. Many galleries have NFT programs, you know, but back in 2010, 2011, prints weren't something that more traditional art galleries pursued. In fact, it was sort of looked down upon in the traditional, like more fine art gallery world. And, you know, as a young broke art lover, you know, for me personally, prints were really my only option uh, as a fan. So, you know, they were always something that I collected. And I think that as I opened my gallery, you know, when I was opening my gallery, I was also, you know, at the time I was buying Tyler Stout prints from Mondo back when you could. And it was like much easier <laughs> than it is today. And, uh, you know, buying prints from my favorite artists and stuff like that. So, uh the impetus was uh, on the very first Bad Dads show, uh, we had this painting by Greg Gossel. It was a, a portrait of Steve Zissou, Bill Murray from The Life Aquatic. Beautiful painting, big painting. It was $3,000. And uh, we sold it. We sold this $3,000 painting, which, you know, at the time was a very big deal. That's a huge, wow, like we sold this $3,000 painting. Amazing. And... So many people were like, we love this painting, you know, will you make prints? And we're like, yeah, let's, you know, let's make some prints. And we made a hundred prints. I think they were like a hundred bucks each or something retail. And they sold out in like 30 seconds. And we were like, all right, well, okay, we sold this $3,000 painting, which is awesome. But the next week we sold $10,000 <laughs> of prints of this $3,000 painting. Hmm. How much is one of these printers? You know? <laughs> so like literally like then two weeks later, I went out and I bought like this large format 44 inch. No, we started with a 24 inch and then we upgraded afterwards, but we started with this large format Epson, slapped it in our, in, in, got a warehouse put the put the Epson in the warehouse and just started running our own editions because, you know, paying a third party to print your prints for you, especially, you know, fine art digital prints is very, very, very expensive. Um, and, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing to see like how much the print thing has changed uh, since then, you know. So, for example, you know, that anecdote ha happened before the month before that that Wes Anderson show happened, I want to say happened in late October, early November 2010. The next month, we had a show of uh, East Bay artists in San Francisco. We brought our East Bay show to San Francisco. We crossed the bridge, and we had this print feature with my friend Chuck Sperry, and we had a wall. A wall of Chuck Sperry prints. I mean, and these were like a hundred bucks each, you know, it's 2010. And I remember he gave me this Bob Dylan poster and he was like, yeah, I've got this Bob Dylan poster. People really seem to be into it. I'm like, well, it's a fucking awesome poster. So, you know, we'll happily take it. How much is it? And Chuck's like, I don't know, man, let's, uh, 
let's make it like $500. And I was like, $500, Chuck, no one's <laughs> going to buy this poster for $500. You're out of your mind. And we put the poster up and it didn't sell. And like, I want to say like weeks went by and eventually like someone online got wind of it and really, really wanted it really, really badly. And they bought it. And I called Chuck. I'm like, somebody just bought the poster for 500 and Chuck's like, wait, what? <laughs> really? I, I didn't expect that. I'm like, yeah, me neither. It's amazing. And of course now that's like a $5,000 poster. Right. So, you know, the, the, the world has changed a lot since then. Well, so it's interesting that um, when faced with the choice of, uh, or with when faced with the opportunity to make your own prints, rather than going to a print shop, you were like, oh, "We're just going to do it ourselves." Like, and and that was effectively, the, I think, the beginning of the People's Print Shop, which was ultimately founded in, I guess, 2012. A little bit after that. Um, so, I guess, why did you immediately jump to that? Um, of hey, we're just going to start another business to to do this thing rather than outsourcing it to some other company. Yeah, for sure. So you know, I. And I think that this is just maybe my personality, but if I can do it myself, I would rather just do it myself. I think that I will probably likely do a better job. I will probably likely make more money. And I just like to be very hands-on. Uh, if I, you know, it's how I ensure that it's going to get done correctly. And, um, you know, the people's print shop arose, you know, sort of as, as an opportunity to produce fine art prints with artists who are working outside of our gallery. You know, obviously with the gallery, we would publish prints for our artists. But there's all these other amazing artists out there in the world who I'd love to work with, but it doesn't really make sense to work with them at the gallery. If I'm not working with them through the gallery, I'm busy with gallery stuff. So, you know, the People's Print Shop was a solution and an answer to that. Um, and really almost every, almost every single year since you know, these early, since 2010, 2011, almost every single year we have made some sort of big jump. And oftentimes that big jump is to solve this problem of how do we do something new? Let's do it ourselves, right? So, you know, People's Print Shop, I, 2012 sounds about right. I think you've done your research better than I. <laughs> um, you know, that was uh, 2012. So then 2013, I think we opened Hashimoto Contemporary. And that was an answer to, well, you know, I love, you know, illustration. I love pop art. I love street art. I love, you know, these very accessible forms of art that brought me into the art world. But at the same time, you know, I also love sort of higher concept art, right? And... You know, much as I would happily grab a slice of pizza at my local pizza spot, you know, I also love going to a Michelin star restaurant, right? There's all of these different things that I love, different styles of music that I love, et cetera. So, you know, we opened Hashimoto in 2013 as, a, as an answer to that, right? How do we pursue more contemporary, um, higher concept work uh, in, in a gallery format? Um after that, uh, I want to say Paragon Books may have come after Hashimoto. Uh, and so just to catch listeners up, we also have a book publishing company called Paragon Books. Um, our next release is actually going to be next month uh, with Felicia Chow. Do you know her work, Michael? Yes, she's fantastic. Yeah, She's amazing. So uh, we are publishing her debut book. Um, it's going to be pretty cool. What we did was we took her sketchbook. We took sketchbook number six and we scanned the entire thing, um, and recreated it 
identically to the original book. And, you know, that's okay, cool, been there, done that. If you've seen any of our Moleskin project books, you know that we that's something that we've done. Mm-hmm. But for Felicia's book, what's really interesting is that, you know, she uses these Copic markers and they bleed through the paper. So the backs of each piece on paper is totally bled through. It's smudgy. It looks crazy. It's like, it looks like an abstract, smudgy Jackson Pollock, right? So in creating this book for her, we scanned the backs of the pages and reprinted those. Oh, wow. So you sort of get this look almost behind the scenes that you're not going to get at a gallery show. Um, and that's how her actual sketchbook is, though you would never know that unless you picked it up and flipped through it. Um, beyond that, we sort of like brought out all the bells and whistles on this. So, uh, you know, she has scattered throughout her actual sketchbook these sticky notes. And they have just ideas, shopping lists, you know, whatever. We had our printer print sticky notes and put them in the same exact spots throughout the book. So when you buy a copy of Felicia's book from us, it's going to have all of that in it. It's pretty amazing. Uh, The samples have arrived. They look, um, they look great. I'm really, I'm really, really, really proud of this one. And then, yeah, those will be available next month through Paragon uh, Books. Shout out to that. Um, you know, so, yeah. So, like, we have our own in-house publishing, you know, book publishing company. Um, you know, we were doing all these pop-up shows in New York for, for many, many years. And eventually it was like, fuck it, let's just open a New York gallery. <laughs> so we opened a New York gallery in whatever, 2015, 2016. Um, you know, and then now, uh, we, you know, probably our most recent thing is we've got this puzzle company, this jigsaw puzzle company called Recess. And, you know, the timing was so terrible on this one, man. Ugh, I can't, you, it, this is crazy. All right. So de- another detour here. I'm sorry. But uh, in, gosh, this must have been like December two years ago. I was like, man, you know, jigsaw puzzles are pretty cool. The holidays are happening. Like, it'd be nice if we got some like jig- jigsaw puzzles going for like our artists. Because what a such an easy medium to translate, right? I've got a print and I can just put that print on a jigsaw puzzle. This is like perfect, right? And so we started looking around. This is like December, you know, whatever, 2019. Found some factories, got some samples going. And then four months later, coronavirus happens. Oh. And that shuts everything down. So our factories are closed. Our samples aren't being made. Our production's not happening. And the irony of it, because if we had been like six months earlier on this, if we had gotten the ball rolling a few weeks maybe earlier on this, we would have crushed it because during the pandemic, everyone was doing jigsaw puzzles. You know, I would have sold through my entire inventory immediately. It would have been like the most successful launch of all time. Um, but of course, you know, COVID amongst many things, uh, screwed that up and, uh, it didn't re- so it got a much slower start than it should have, but we're up and running now. Um, we've released a few puzzles so far. Uh, I've got these, uh, ones with Arna Miller and Ravi Zupa. Have you? Are you familiar yeah. with that cat series? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Drunk Cats. So Drunk Cats dropping uh, soon. Frank Lloyd Wright coming after that. Got some good designs on that. And then, um, yeah, and then we've, we're pursuing some other series as well. So making our own puzzles. So with, with the the non-gallery business expansion, so I think expanding to Hashimoto, I think there's an ob- that's an obvious 
more of an obvious thing because you've been in the gallery business, you're opening another gallery and the New York expansion kind of falls into that same thing where it's another gallery where you've had experience creating galleries, but with the print shop and the book publishing and now puzzles, those are very different business models and very different problems to solve. So was that a challenge, just learning the ropes of an entirely different business um, multiple times? Yes and no. The biggest challenge, to be honest with you, is staffing and finding good people and hiring them and keeping them around, especially when you're multi-city. That is so incredibly difficult. And especially in cities like the cities that we're in. I mean, we live in very creative places, but, you know, rent is through the roof. I mean, I'm operating in the two most expensive cities in this country. I know things, you're in Austin, right? Yeah. It's yeah. I know things are too. expensive <laughs> in Austin. I know. I, I, I feel your pain. Um, but you know, the Bay Area is nuts. New York City is nuts. And the cost of living is crazy, mm-hmm. right? So like even beyond just like paying rent, on multiple gallery locations, the first of every month, I have to make payroll every two weeks. And, you know, finding good people is one of the most difficult things, especially when you're stretched thin and especially when you have multiple locations. Um, but, you know, I've been blessed much as many of our artists have been with us for a very long time. Our turnover at the galleries is very, very low. Um, most employees are with us for a few years. So. Uh, you know, we've been lucky in that regard, but you know, the, the, the most difficult thing about like getting, so for example, like, as I said, like the recess, the puzzle company has been sort of a slower start than I would have liked. And beyond the pandemic, part of that is just because I don't have the bandwidth to really dedicate 40 hours a week to this puzzle company. I'm too, I'm wearing too many different hats. So finding someone who can take that and run with it. And right now, uh, it's going to be my buddy, Zach, uh, that, really is the only thing that holds me back. And I will tell you right now, if I had 10 more employees and they were all as amazing as amazing as the employees that I have right now, we would be so much bigger and be doing so much more. Um, you know, the only reason I haven't opened a gallery in Chicago is because I don't know anyone in Chicago, you know? Um, so yeah, that's really, that's really the, the toughest thing I want to say about being a small business owner with the type of business that we have. And is that Zach Tudor that's helping you? Yeah. yeah okay. Because yeah. he's involved in the, the people's print shop too, right? Yeah. 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 So Zach, uh, and you know, uh, you know, this is a, a decade long friendship. You know, I met Zach. He runs a, a very popular Tumblr blog called Supersonic. And, you know, I guess probably 2011, maybe I hit him up. I found him on Tumblr. I was like, Hey man, like, really dig your supersonic blog. I write for this magazine called High Fructose. Do you want to write? And he was like, yeah, and wrote a couple articles and we just sort of became friends and I gave him a a curatorial opportunity at the gallery. And, you know, now like, yeah, he's doing his thing. It's great. Awesome. Very cool. So so I want to talk a little bit about the expansion um, to open Hashimoto Contemporary. Um, You talked a little bit about that earlier as it being... um, a way for you to get more into the high concept fine art that you weren't really, um, you know, that wasn't really a part of your, your program for spoke art. Um, in, in light of those differences in those two programs, one being more pop culture focused and one being more kind of high art, um, you know, focused, are there differences in the way that you curate those two galleries? I mean, is the curation, is the activity of curation 
fundamentally different between those two programs with the different focuses that they have? That's a good question. Um, I want to say no. I want to say that a good show is a good show. And that, um, you know, it's sort of like cooking, right? You know, if, if you cook, if you work at a French restaurant and you, you know, versus someone who works at a ramen shop, right? Those are two very different styles and those are two very different skill sets and they're two very different levels of education. But at the end of the day, you're doing the same thing. And every amazing chef that I've ever known, give them enough time and enough, and enough decent training behind any, any kitchen, they'll pick it up because you're really just sort of doing the same thing, but with different elements. You know, you're combining the salt and the acid and the fat and the heat and, you know, but you're doing so with different types of vegetables, depending on where you are. And I think that as a gallerist and as a curator, the considerations that I put into a Hashimoto show are very much the same as what I put into a spoke show. Mm. And so when you, when you expanded to New York, um, and, and you'll have to correct my memory if I'm wrong, I, wasn't that space originally a spoke art space and then it changed to Hashimoto? Mm -hmm. What was the, what was that situation? Were you originally thinking that would be more pop, um, you know, pop art focused versus contemporary art focused? Sure. So yeah, we did open as a spoke uh, in New York when we opened, which was like 2015 or 2016. Hashimoto was still pretty young at that point um, and hadn't developed uh, its collector base the way that it has now. Um, And, you know, much as I can go both by Harmon or by Hashimoto, For me, the galleries are really the same thing. It just doesn't, you know, they're just different labels, but they're really the same thing. And what's interesting is that, so for example, when we do a spoke art show in New York, uh, which we do pretty regularly, when we do a spoke art show in New York, if you inquire on an original work at that show, you'll be talking to Jennifer, who is our New York director, and you will reach out to her at her New York at spoke art email address. The next month, if you, if it's a Hashimoto show and you see a work that you like, you're going to talk to Jennifer. You're just going to talk to her at her Hashimoto at, you know, uh, her New York at Hashimoto email address. And the show will be installed by Raul, uh, who works technically for both galleries. And the works will be stored at our warehouse in Berkeley by Hector, who manages everything. And so really... It's the same exact thing for us logistically, same gallery, same employees, same methods, you know, same ways of selling, same ways of doing something. We're just putting a different, uh, a different label on it. So, um, you know, that when Spoke wound up transitioning to Hashimoto, um, that was actually for a couple different reasons. And one reason is, is the New York market. Um, I, something that we learned over time is that, you know, we were very California based, uh, spoke art being a California company. And, um, there is a really interesting divide between the New York art scene and the California art scene. And you see this going back to the sixties. You see this going back to the seventies and, um, a lot of the sort of more accessible illustrative, you know, so for example, like pop surrealism you know, had a very brief heyday in New York with Jonathan Levine Gallery. But after Jonathan's closed, uh, 
there wasn't really much room for it. And the response to it was good, but we were getting a lot more interest from like California-based collectors than we were from New York collectors. And I think that that's just a regional thing. I think that, you know, and as we've developed as, 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 a, as a business and as an organization, you know, that's something that I, that I consider curatorially. So for example, the work that I would bring to the Seattle Art Fair would likely be different to the work that I would bring to the Dallas Art Fair. Because I'm going to, when I prepare for these events, I'm going to consider who is the local market, what are they interested in, and how do I cater to that? Um, so yeah, Hashimoto, be so the New York space became a Hashimoto, but in many ways it still spoke art. And in many ways we still do spoke art shows there very regularly. And so for me, it's really the same thing. Right on, right on. And so you mentioned earlier, you're actually living out in New York now yourself, right? What prompted that move? Like, do you, do you like the New York, New York area better or is it just to, to be closer to that, that gallery? Um, we have more going on in New York, uh, to be totally clear. So yeah, I do, you know, it's just, there's more happening here than there is in the Bay. Uh, I was also in the Bay for like a decade and it's a long time. And, you know, to be frank, and I hate to say it, but the Bay area has changed a lot. It is very different today than what it was when I moved there. And it's changed in some good ways and it's changed in some bad ways. And like, I don't know, it's not, it's a city that I love, but it's not the city that I fell in love with. And, um, you know, I'm here, I'm in New York. My life is now in New York. I love New York. Um, I will be spending a lot more time in California um, in the uh, weeks to come. Um, but yeah, this is where I am now. And I don't know, maybe I'll be somewhere else 10 years from now. <laughs> what, what goes into deciding, I guess, which coast, um, a show is going to be at, you know, if it's going to be in the San Francisco show versus the New York show, what goes into that decision? You know, honestly, a lot of it's uh, the artist. What does the artist want? And that's one, that's, what's great about being so flexible is that if my, if I have a spoke artist and they say, Hey, I want a New York show. Great. Done and done. Here's, here's Jennifer's contact. Here are your dates. Do it. Um, so a lot of the times it's what does the artist want? A lot of artists have uh, have like an internal checklist of things that they want to accomplish. And I feel that as a gallery, it is my job to help them achieve, you know, these accomplishments. And for most artists, I mean, yeah, like you want to do a New York City solo show at some point, right? For most artists, a solo show in San Francisco, heck yeah, that sounds awesome, right? Who doesn't want to go? Um, you know, for most artists, doing uh, Art Basel Miami is a really big deal and, and a checklist. For most artists, um, participating in a museum exhibition, that's a big deal. For most artists, publishing a book is another thing that most artists want to see and want to, want to accomplish. And, you know, I've spent the better part of the last decade developing this organization in a way that we can actually provide all of these things you know <laughs> like you want to show in new york done you want to go to miami done you want you want to be in a museum show cool i've got one coming up you want a book great let's do it you know and um yeah and that's that's something that i take a, a lot of pride in 
Yeah, it's it's like every every aspect of your business has been to check off a box of a potential thing an artist might want to do. <laughs> it seems Absolutely. Like. Absolutely. That's that's really cool. So, I mean, you talked a little bit earlier about how important and really vital having a strong team around you has been. And and I really see that just in the way that that you kind of run the business. How is leadership um, and curation divided across the three different spaces, uh, the two in San Francisco and the one in New York? And and how much of it do you manage yourself versus giving people like Dasha and Jennifer the freedom to kind of do it, do what they want to do? The gallery in the galleries in many ways are informed by our employees and by our curators. And a lot of the newer artists that we bring on to the program are artists that are introduced to the gallery through our curators. Um, and on average, Jennifer and Dasha typically have anywhere from one to three exhibitions that are theirs and that they can curate. And I say, you know, carte blanche, do whatever you got to do. You know, can you include this one person though? I really like them. But other than that, you know, have fun, you know. Um, and some of our best artists uh, have come to the roster this way. And in many ways, the identity of Hashimoto especially has been reflective in the employees that we've hired and their interests, right? Because, because, you know, if the gallery only catered to people who have my exact specific interests, uh, I would be our only customer, right? <laughs> There's very few people who like exactly what I like. You know, you need people working with you and working for you who have good taste and who have a good eye and who can contribute because it really is a bigger conversation. It really is, you know, this encompassing thing and allowing and having our, you know, employees and giving them that flexibility and that freedom um, is just good. It's good for us. It's good for the gallery. It's good for our artists. Um, and it's something that we take a lot of pride in and giving my, giving my employees autonomy is pretty important. And so, for example, you know, breaking news, this is not, public record yet. So maybe Art Affairs podcast has the exclusive here. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, for example, Dasha just moved to Los Angeles oh, wow. three days ago. And Hashimoto Contemporary Los Angeles oh, is wow. on September 10th. That's huge. Uh, it's huge. And man, Michael, I cannot wait for you to see this space. It's in Culver City. It's uh, 2,500 square feet. It's a beautiful museum quality level exhibition space. It's amazing. Um, this was the original location for Blum and Poe Gallery when they opened 20 years ago in Los Angeles. So this is where Takashi Murakami had his first solo show in LA. This is where uh, Nara had his first solo show in LA. Um, it is currently across the street from Blum and Poe. It's on South La Cienega. It used to be Zevitas Marcus Gallery. And it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful space. And it opens in like three weeks. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't hear anything about that. That's incredible. Yeah, we've just been busy. So <laughs> we've been busy with a million other things. So we'll make the announcement in probably like a week or two. Awesome. Very cool. Congratulations on that. That's exciting. Thank you. Um, so on the note, you mentioned um, just wanting to have your lineup be more than just the artists that you follow, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, how much thought do you put into diversity in general when it comes to your lineup because i feel like you get your you have a pretty diverse roster when it comes to race gender all of those things is that something that you've really had to put a lot of thought and intention towards 
You know, it is and it isn't. Um, and I will tell you right now, it is very difficult to be a curator today. And what I mean by that is that I have been, you know, so first of all, as somebody who is like, by definition, yeah, I mean, I'm biracial, right? So for me, like, I have an, I have an inter- very interesting, very unique perspective on race in general. But, you know, yeah, it has to be something that we consider. But at the same time, you don't want it to be something that you're doing because you feel like you have to do it, right? right? Yeah. And so, like, I look at my program, and our program has always been very heavy on female artists. And I want to say we were very much before the trend on that. And that just happened naturally. It just happened organically. A lot of the artists that I loved happened to be women. We gave a lot of those female artist shows. Um, and, you know, uh, as the social conversation has evolved over the years, uh, you know, that became a thing. And a lot of galleries were like, oh, no, we we need more women artists. And I was just like, whew, yeah, we're, we're, we're covered. We're good, man. We, you know, we're about 50%, uh, you know, 50% of our shows tend to be female artists. And that's just, that was never intentional. It was just how it happened. Um, you know, looking at my roster today, you know, um, you know, I feel like I've got a lot of good Asian artists. I feel like I've got a lot of good Hispanic artists. I feel like I've got a lot of good female artists. I feel like I've got good black artists. You know, I don't have any trans artists though. And, you know, to some degree that bothers me because I want to support the trans community and I have nothing but love for the trans community. But at the same time, as a curator, I don't want to fall into this trap in which I say, oh, hey, you're trans. I'm going to give you a show because that's not the answer, right? The answer isn't saying, oh, well, you check my box, come here, and now I can pat myself on the back and saying, look, I have this underserved community in my gallery. Good for me. Everyone congratulate me. That's not what we should be going for as an artistic community. And I see it happening. I see that happening in museums. And it's progress. It's progress because it is good to be giving those opportunities, but you have to be giving them for the right reasons and for good reasons. And I don't think any artist would want to hear, oh, cool, I got this opportunity, not because of my work, but because of my color or because of my identity or what have you. And so that's just a really tricky thing. And, you know, it's something that we all need to take consideration in. And I think that, you know, What's interesting about your podcast is that I think that you, much like me, have sort of a background both in pop art and in contemporary art. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, the pop art scene suffers a very serious lack of representation. And, you know, there just aren't, you know, I don't know what it is, man, but like there are like the 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 fact that like, I mean, name female pop artists who like screen print, go. Go name them. Like, how many can you come up with? Because I can probably come up with like four, you know, and I've been doing this for a decade. And why is that? Right. Is it because the scene is not inclusive enough to begin with? Is it a subject matter that maybe doesn't appeal to that demographic? That doesn't seem right. You know, so like what like why don't we have more female screen print artists working in the pop culture scene? Right. We need more. That needs to be something that we focus on. Um, but at the same time, and just to like, this is just this onion, right? You just keep peeling back these layers and these layers and these layers. So a few years ago, um, and again, before the trend, I think a few years ago, Hashimoto did this exhibition that was only female artists. 
guests, okay, in the show. And what we intentionally did at the time was there was nothing in the show title that suggested that this was a female artist show. And when you read the press release to the exhibition and the curatorial statement to the exhibition, there was nothing in it saying, hey, look at all these female artists that we put together. The only way that the viewer realized that they were in a gallery exhibition surrounded entirely by works created by female artists was when you looked at the artist roster and you said, wait a minute, there is no men in this show, right? Because, because, and that was an intentional decision that we made because we don't want this to be a novelty, right? Female artists should not be a novelty. It shouldn't be like, oh, wow, look at that. Isn't that cute? That's, you know, how interesting. No, it should be the norm, right? You should walk into a museum and see black artists and see trans artists and see female artists and see indigenous artists without it being a spectacle. It should just be how it is. And so trying to find a way to normalize that was in many ways the intention behind that show, which is why we didn't advertise that it was a female artist show, because it's not a gimmick and it shouldn't have to be a gimmick. Um, No, I think that's an important distinction and it's an important point to make, which is, you know, it needs to be authentic. It needs to be something genuine, not something, not somebody just checking a box saying, okay, I've, I've checked, I've got all of the representation that I need. Um, That's very kind of, um, kind of empty Uh, so doing it with intention and kind of inspecting the the environment to make sure that the environment is conducive to diversity i think that's really what needs that's the exercise or the activity that needs to happen rather than just putting somebody on a roster because they check a box you know exactly no that's a great point so i want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the frank lloyd wright project which you mentioned earlier and that's something that's fairly new um i think 2019 was the first year for that where you partnered with frank lloyd wright foundation um so i guess how did that opportunity first come about like where is that something that you approached them with the idea for or they came to you they came to us um they had someone jeff goodman at the frank lloyd wright foundation had come across uh our wes anderson art book um so for any listeners who aren't familiar many many years ago we published this art book with a rooms books a big book publisher wes anderson wrote the introduction to the book it featured all of the artwork from our Wes Anderson art shows and uh, Jeff being a Wes Anderson fan had picked up this book. He fell in love with the artwork specifically with this artist, Max Dalton, who was in our very first Wes Anderson show 10 years ago. And we still work with to today um, fell in love with Max's work and um, got Max to, and Max's aesthetic is very like mid-century modern. So it's actually a perfect pairing. And Max had, done some work for the foundation. They have this quarterly publication that the foundation sends to members, et cetera. Um, And then Max just sort of made the connection and I threw him a pitch for an idea for an art show and it took a while and they wrapped their heads around it and they loved it. And we said, let's do it. And um, we've done a couple of them. We did one in Taliesin West in Scottsdale, Arizona. We did one at Taliesin uh, in Spring Green, Wisconsin. Uh, We brought the show to New York. Um, and, uh, it's amazing, man. It is so cool. Like I, you know, growing up in, in an art loving household, I was, Frank Lloyd Wright was in many ways a part of my childhood. We had books and, you know, my mom, you know, my mom and I went to Falling Water, I don't know, 20 years, 20 years ago when we were, happened to be on a road trip. 
And so for me, this has been like a passion project. I'll tell you right now, I do not make money on this show. <laughs> but like for me, it's just something that I love to do. And we get to go there and we get to put on an art show inside the same exact room where the Guggenheim was designed. I mean, that's fucking crazy, amazing. man. You know, and we get to stay there. We get to sleep there. We get to live there for a week. I mean, it's really the most amazing thing in the world. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's, I don't make any money doing it, but I love it so much and I'm so proud to do it. And it is so interesting to me and it's so different, right? Because, you know, in many ways we're tapping these poster artists, right? Who you've probably seen this Mondo print that they did, or you've seen this spoke art print that they did, or this 88 print or whatever, right? You've seen them at San Diego Comic Con or what have you. And, you know, much as, you know, one of my gripes about the pop art scene is that there's a lack of representation. Another gripe of mine, not to just be sitting here and ranting like a crazy <laughs> uncle, but another gripe of mine is that it's just the same thing over and over again. And like, I get it, you know, like licenses are expensive and the, you know, people like Jurassic Park. I get that. Make your money. That is fine. But for the love of God, can we do interesting things here? Like, can we do things that aren't, I don't want to say easy and or profitable. Oftentimes those, those two things come hand in hand as a business owner. I get it. But hey, man, if we're going to do, you know, a Star Wars poster and I love Star Wars, but if we're going to do a Star Wars poster, let's also do something else. That is really interesting and is really different. And I think that this is something that everyone's grappling with. Um, you know, I look at like, so for example, I look at like what Mondo's been doing, right? And like, they're like, you know, they've always done cool stuff. And like, now it's like, okay, like nice. Like they're doing some Wong Kar Wai stuff. Like that is great. And I think that partially that is a response, not only to their own individual interests, I would assume, but also to just the fact that we have this crowded marketplace right now. There are so many galleries doing this. There's so many license holders doing it and they're doing it in the UK and they're doing it in the US and like, you know, releasing a cool Jurassic Park poster or a cool Back to the Future poster or a cool whatever, you know, it's not, it's so ubiquitous, so ubiquitous, it's so everywhere. And I think that all of us um, need to come up with our own way of finding a balance of like, okay, cool, how do we do this to pay the bills? But how do we also do something different and something interesting, you know? And I think all of the different companies and organizations are finding their own little niches um whether that be like gig posters you know like i look at like what joe bottleneck's doing and like he's really developing like this like grateful dead you know um widespread panic like gig poster thing in a way that mondo never pursued with gig posters you know what i mean and mondo's doing their own thing with statues and you know merchandising and taking a risk on you know sort of less popular but better quality you know, licenses, right? Like yeah. in the mood for love or whatever. So, um, you know, in many ways, I think that the Frank Lloyd Wright thing is just sort of our answer to that. Like, how do we do what we love, but do it in a new and interesting way uh, and hopefully turn some people on to to this architecture, right? I mean, there's Frank Lloyd Wright buildings all over this country. Go visit one. Go find out what's, you know, check it out. Many of them are accessible. Um, if you love art, you're probably going to love this. Right. I mean, it's stuff inspired so many um, different aspects of popular culture, sure. too. Were the artists given an opportunity to, to stay at the homes, too, that the ones that they depicted? 
So let me see who Rory Kurtz stayed with us at Taliesin in Spring Green, Wisconsin. Um, he's visited Taliesin West for maybe a future thing. Um, and, but, you know, for us, it's really a travel issue. Many of the artists don't happen to, you know, how many poster artists live in Scottsdale, Arizona? Right. You know, when we told Rory, hey, we're coming to Wisconsin, his head exploded, right? Because how often <laughs> does anyone say, hey, Rory, we're coming to Wisconsin to do a rad event? You know, usually he has to travel to New York or travel to L.A. or whatever. So, um, you know, finding folks who happen to be near these buildings can be tricky. But, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of our artists who have been like, oh, yeah, like I've been to this house near nearby me. I'd love to, you know, create it or what have you. Awesome. Very cool. So, and you said you have another one coming up this year, right? Is that in October? Correct. It'll be October. I want to say weekend of like the 19th or something like that. Awesome. And so um, what else do you have coming up for 2021? What does the rest of uh, the year look like for you guys? Oh boy. All right. So September, we open Hashimoto LA. October, we open Pat Perry in at Hashimoto, New York. Where is it? Jillian Evelyn. Uh, we've got a pretty great line. We're doing 50 exhibitions right now just through the galleries. So come October, we will have four gallery shows the month of October, plus the Frank Lloyd Wright show, plus New York Comic Con, followed by Complex Con in November, in addition to four gallery shows, um, our Basel Miami in December, followed by C2E2 the weekend after in December. Um, so yeah, we are busy, <laughs> crazy busy, man. It just, there's, I think there's one or two weekends between now and new year's that I don't have an opening happening somewhere. Very cool. Um, so the, the, the open, the opening in, in LA is exciting. What about like five year long-term goals? Like what, what would be something that you'd say, man, if I accomplish this in five years, I've made it, you know? Totally. And again, this just goes back to people. If I had, if I, if I can find the right person, I would love to open a gallery in, I don't know, Chicago. I would love to open a gallery in Miami. Long term, international, man. I, that is just such a dream for me. Give, let me open a gallery in Paris. Let me open a gallery in Tokyo. Let me open a gallery in Hong Kong. I will, you know, we've done shows in all of those locations, right? We did a Paris show already. We've done, uh, you know, well, I've been to Japan for shows. We've never done a show in Tokyo, but, you know, we're looking at art fairs in Hong Kong and, you know, we've done shows in London. W- opening a space in one of those cities would be a dream. That would, you know, if, if that, you know, what's what's on my checklist of, 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 of boxes to check off in the future, that would be one of them. So, but again, it's really just about finding the right people to run it because we've got the artists. And we've got the collectors. Uh, it's just getting boots on the ground. Awesome. Very cool. So last question. Um, this is something sure. that I like to ask everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show? Good question. You know, I hate to say it, Michael. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, so I don't know who you've had on your show already. Um, I And, you know, just to like be totally clear as to why I don't listen to podcasts, um, I love them, but as someone who spends his day answering emails, I can't listen to them because unlike every, every artist friend I have spends all day listening to books on tape, 
listening to podcasts. They're in their studio for eight hours. They're working on oil painting. They've got it on in the background. It's great. I can't listen to a book on tape while answering collector inquiries. You know what I mean? That's not – it's going to mess, mess with my head. So I don't really listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, but who should you have on your show? Ah, uh, gosh, man. I don't know. That is a good question. Have you had Mike Mitchell on your show? I haven't, no. You know, I will tell you right now, I think that you should have Mike on your show. Have you had Mitch from uh, Mondo? No, I haven't. I haven't. And that would be a lot of fun, too. I've, I've known Mitch for, for several years. And well, I think that, I mean, I, the only reason I recommend those two people specifically is because I find them to be really interesting, engaging, funny people. And I think that they would probably be good guests. Like they would, like I would listen to that. And probably Mitch would probably say something hilarious, <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, I don't know. Um, I think that just getting interesting, interesting opinionated people is probably the way to go and, or get people uh, on who are going to talk about what's happening today. I mean, there's all sorts of drama, especially in the poster world. Poster people are nuts. <laughs> all sorts of drama happening. I, even today on Facebook, I saw something I probably shouldn't talk about. Uh-oh. Talk about these things. That, that would be great. I would listen to that. Awesome. Very cool. So, Kent, thank you so much for doing the show, man. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Really, really, really good catching up with you, Michael. And I will hopefully see you at something sometime soon. Maybe at Mesa, maybe at an art fair, maybe at a con. Hit the road. Are you traveling for anything? Are you traveling for anything anytime soon? Uh, I am still not going out too much. Like, yeah. Don't get me started. <laughs> um, yeah. With COVID and everything, I barely go to the grocery store still so i am uh i am not traveling anytime soon um if i can help it um unfortunately have you been to miami for basil i haven't no 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 dude so this should that be my first post covid oh not this year don't come no this not year. this year no, no. Don't, 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 don't come this year but i mean that needs to be on your short list for sure okay and i definitely need to come out to la again so the fact that you guys are going to have a space there now will be another reason why i should come out yeah, absolutely. And ThinkSpace has moved into a new location. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I checked it out last time I was in town. Um, yeah, man, come through. I'm sure I'll see you somewhere sometime. Maybe when Hashimoto Austin opens, I'll let you know. <laughs> All right. All right. Very cool. That's a good place to close out then. Cool, man. Cool. So that was good. What'd you think? So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ken. It's super interesting how organically all of his various business ventures have developed. The way that whenever he's faced with a problem, his solution tends to be, let's just do it ourselves. Artists want to put out monograms? Let's just do it ourselves. Artists want to have shows in New York City? Let's do it ourselves. His entire career has clearly been an effort at providing opportunities, solutions, experiences to artists and the art community, and it really shows in the way that he conducts business. I'm really stoked to hear about this new space in Culver City. That's really exciting. I had no idea they were planning an expansion into LA. It's definitely something I'll be looking to visit whenever I finally feel you know comfortable enough to to travel to LA again. I've I've been wanting to, especially with you know, ThinkSpace's new new spot opened up and just having not been there in, you know, five or six years, I've been wanting to go, 
you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, join that with the anxiety of travel in general and, of course, with, with COVID. So uh, who knows when that'll be, but whenever it is, I really look forward to, uh, you know, checking out Ken's new spot. Um, so if you're in the Los Angeles area already, definitely make it a point to go check it out. It's, it's going to be really cool. So thanks again to Ken for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. I'm truly grateful for your support. And just a reminder, one big way you could help out if you're really enjoying the show would be to check out the show's Patreon. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash artifairs. And as always, you can contact me through my website at artifairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artifairspodcast. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other. Thank you.